You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And Neil, I wanted to start our conversation today by talking about a new paper. It came out also with a, a blog post by Zach Lipton and Jacob Steinhardt. And they titled it Troubling Trends in Machine Learning Scholarship. Tell me, tell me what you think about this and sort of give us a, an overview of it. Yeah, so I think that this is... Um... It's an interesting paper that uh, I guess is in the theme of work we've uh, heard about, which is concern about how we're doing our science mm-hmm. in machine learning. Um, and this paper sort of focuses on how we're writing papers and uh, suggests that there's some patterns uh, sort of trending in ML scholarship, and, and they separate that into four. The first one is failure to distinguish between explanation and speculation. Mm-hmm. And I think by that they mean speculating is about like, so you're considering that they give an example about a covariate shift within neural network weights. But, you know, and I haven't studied that example specifically, but their point is that people speculate perhaps about what may go wrong in the training of a neural network don't necessarily provide the evidence to back up their speculation, then that becomes, I suppose, quoted as fact. Right. The the next is um, failing to identify the sources of empirical gains. So emphasizing Mm. unnecessary modifications to neural architectures when gains actually stem from hyperparameter tuning. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, um, if we think of like, this is a classic sort of thing, uh, trying to allocate where improvements come from or where errors are coming from Mm -hmm. in changes to architectures. Mathiness, so the use of maths obfuscates or impresses rather than clarifies. So, I've heard this also described as sleight of math or math magic. Math magic, mathematically. Magical. I'm I'm, I'm rather against. I don't really like auto magic, but but maybe I'll take mathematical. Okay. See, I'll just be inconsistent about that (laughs) as a term. Don't tell me automatical, but you can tell me mathematical. (laughs) And misuse of language by choosing broad Mm. terms of art with colloquial connotations by overloading established technical terms. So so using a word to mean multiple different things. Hasn't this been the story for a long time? Like, aren't these like sort of fundamental things that we are always trying to fight? Is this new? I think that's an interesting question. You know, one could argue, have we identified that this is actually a new thing, a new phenomenon? I mean, is it trending more? I, I don't know. I think that's um, I, I think it's quite possible that this is actually a much. Well, I believe this has been going on forever and a day. Having said that, it's useful to separate these things out. I think it's actually quite a nice characterization of what's going on forever and a day. Definitely. Maybe the real question is um, what you do about it. Mm. I mean, yeah. So, so um, uh, I mean, I think in their uh, discussion they talk about historical antecedents so they they agree they're not unique to machine learning or unique to a period in time they talk about an unchecked decline in scholarship but i think that's debatable is it decline in scholarship or are we just getting so many papers now i don't know in some sense um i don't it's hard to know necessarily um Mm. what you can i mean does the paper itself provide a scientific study of what we do about that because you know or is it just pub talk i don't know i think that that's a and maybe it's fine to do pub talk so so maybe one could even in a meta way sort of say yes but this paper is is kind of perhaps doing the same thing and to that extent i think that's absolutely fine yeah you know one could make that argument and actually there is room you know one danger with this is you become so constrained by some idealistic view of uh, the philosophy of science 
that you forget that the, the papers are about communication. I also think that there's interesting points about, well, where is this stemming from? Is it stemming from people who are writing or is it stemming from reviewers or is it systemic in some way? In the paper, they mentioned that they feel like it's as the attention on machine learning increases and as the impact of machine learning widens, that the audience for research papers gets gets larger and includes both students and journalists and also policymakers, that this is sort of creating a bubble of these things that we're that we've seen for a long time. We're seeing this sort of like outward exponential growth of the of these problems because the attention is getting larger and the audience is getting larger. And I think that that's I think that that's right. And you know, even if the paper is just sort of calling attention to the fact that we need to pay attention to these things, but also, you know, maybe not pen ourselves in with a little fence of how we're supposed to do things or one view on how we're supposed to do things, I think it's a good guide rail. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's always, and that's something I love about the paper, it's always good to be self-reflective. Yeah. Any sort of self-reflection, you know, whether that's done individually in small groups or as a community. Yeah. That's an excellent thing. And this, Neil, this paper or this uh, thread of thought on, on Zach's blog, he links it to the, um, the debate, the machine learning debates at ICML, where we spent a lot of time talking about machine learning, which is one of your, I know, favorite things, instead of doing machine yeah. learning, just doing the talking about machine learning. Well, it's easier, isn't it? It's e- <laughs> is it easier to, be, to do it in an informed way? That's yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. No paradox. Well, we'll have a link to Zach's blog post and the paper that was written about this, as well as the machine learning debates on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. Yeah, I think it's a great debate and we should um, keep having it. Yes, absolutely. This week's question on Talking Machines is sort of a recycled question, perhaps, comes from a listener who says, I was at the Vector Job Fair for the CIFAR Summer School, and someone asked the attendant speakers, Jeff Hinton, Joshua Bengio, and Rich Sutton, are we engineers or are we scientists? Neil, what do you consider yourself to be? So I'm going to put you on the spot with this question, Neil. Are you a scientist or are you an engineer? I certainly started out my career thinking of myself very much as an engineer, um, mm-hmm. but I can see I'm often viewed within the context I work currently as a scientist. So backing off a bit, these terms can be uh, a barrier and mm. we should never allow them to be a barrier. They can also be helpful because they're trying to characterize different natures of work. Let me try and characterize how I think of engineering Applied science and pure science. Hmm. I, I read this book actually about um, uh, the, it's a very long book, don't recall the title for the moment, about the people in the sort of 19, I think it's late 1920s, 1930s, who went first to climb, try and climb Everest. And, uh, you know, it's an amazing story. Mallory's in there, and, you know, I think it, by the final exhibition they try using oxygen, Mallory um, disappears. But so much of the book is about the journey to. Everest. So yeah, a lot of the book and actually what they packed and that they had champagne and stuff. You didn't even know how to get to Everest. Right. And there I often no- think about 
exploration, I always define what we're doing. You know, what we know mathematically is that if we're trying to try achieve a goal on a finite time horizon, there will be an explore stage and there will be an exploit stage. Um, mm. But the terms I'm preferring now are explore and execute because the problem is if you say exploit, you say now we're going to exploit what we know, then people misinterpret that. So I, I, I'm going to so refer good. to it as explore, execute. I know execute can have bad connotations too. <laughs> But I'm going with that for the explore moment. Explore and guillotine. Yeah, explore guillotine. Yeah. So, um, okay. What? So let me try and characterize science and engineering. So I think of science as the case where you might believe or know that the highest mountain in Nepal, the Himalayas, or the world exists. Mm -hmm. You might not even know where it is, mm. but you're just wandering the sort of intellectual landscape trying to find it. Well, in fact... So I think pure science is you don't even know that it exists. You're just wandering around an intellectual landscape. You're like, you're shipping it could, up it on could places be there. <laughs> and going, hey, this is pretty cool. And you write a paper. You know, that's sort of pure science is it's like <laughs> I'm wandering around, you know, and then there was a hill and there was a cave and it was great. You know, I had a flag. A I put it in the sand. Yeah. This is where the yeah. flag is, everybody. <laughs> Applied science is different. Applied science is, yeah, you know that the, somehow the tallest mountain there exists. And you might even have a vague idea where it is, but you don't quite kind of know how to get there. You can characterize what your destination looks like because you're mm. trying to solve a particular problem. You're like, if we're in this place, you're not in this place. You don't know how to get there. But you say, if you're going to be in this place, it's going to be like this. It's going to be very tall, you know, it'd be windy, whatever. And a lot of applied science is then a lot of what they were doing in this book, which was what is the route to this thing? So mm. uh, apparently his name, so this is Neil's fact of the moment, uh, he pronounced his name, the, the surveyor who noted it, not Everest, Everest. Everest. Because you see, he was British. Mm. It sounds much like Everest. Yeah. It's, it, I think it also has a, a sort of Nepalese name, which is probably, you know, even... Which we're all but saying let, wrong. So let's ignore the name. So it's just a sort of tall mountain. But, the, but a lot of the book is about finding the route there. And you can, in applied science, you end up going up and down. You end up going a up a valley thinking it's going to lead you there. And mm. it's not there. Now, the technical skill set, you need to do pure science and applied science. And when we come to engineering, is roughly the same. So how mm -hmm. you're traversing rough ground how you're getting over a particular ice formation, or if it's that technically challenge, or even just how you're, you're sort of bringing a large chain of supplies over the landscape or crossing a ravine. These are the technical skills that hmm. we see in each of these areas, right? You hmm. know, I need to cross this ravine, allow me to use linear algebra. I need to climb this ice cliff. Uh, let me get advanced calculus out, you know, <laughs> this sort of thing. You know, the same, different skill sets, but, but sort of everyone, engineers, scientists need them. An engineer, on the other hand, typically knows the destination and knows the route to get there. But they're often looking to cover the ground as quickly as possible. And they're typically more interested in laying down infrastructure for others to follow. So in applied right. science, you may be reluctant about how much infrastructure you're laying down for others to follow because you might have to back out of the direction, right? Right. Now, these aren't clear separations, right? Because along the way to your sort of Mount Everest goal, you do have known destinations you're targeting at any one given moment. Mm -hmm. So at any given moment, you maybe you have this sort of large goal that's in your head, but you, you're just traversing, you're going somewhere now. And even in right. pure science, you're sometimes saying, well, you know, we don't really know exactly where we want to be in the end, but th it looks interesting to be over there. We can see over there. So let's just head over there. And again, you're some, 
Now, whether you lay down infrastructure, I think, is interesting because if you know many people will follow you, you lay down the infrastructure for them to follow. So what does that mean? It means like you're doing a lot of version controlling, you're putting tests down in your code, you're uh, making shareable code, you're writing one of these large neural network software packages, which, which sort of belong, I think, more in the regime of engineering, but they enable much better science, right? So whether I'm a scientist or any engineer at any one given moment kind of depends on where I am in that landscape. For me, it's very rare that I'm just wandering around the place, uh, you know, without any particular destination in mind, because it just seems to be too much in this intellectual landscape, mm. right? So, so I that's what I love about applied science, and I love about um, goal direction. And I think, you know, relating back to the paper we talked about earlier by um, uh, Zach Lipton and Jacob Steinhardt, I think that part of this, uh, you need to put it in that's this context to sort of understand what's the right thing to do. I mean, mm. there's, there's a sort of amount of ideas generation. Well, let's go over here. Let's go over there. So that, that's kind of something that's coming out of the papers. You know, what I really value at the moment is people who are laying down infrastructure. Are they like, getting any credit? No. The people mm. who are creating and curating the data sets, far more value than most papers at the moment, right where we are now, because of many of the reasons that Zach and Jacob talk about. But they're not getting any credit. The people who lay down software. You know, there's a number of projects where we've been laying down software in my team for a while, which enables a bunch of things to be done simpler. That in the meantime, people have published the standalone papers. Mm. And I just think, you know, I'm not sure it's interesting to publish those papers. It's obvious that you could do it. It would be interesting to lay down the infrastructure. Do my team thank me for that? Probably not, because they could have got the credit for the idea in inverted commas. Yeah. It's, so now you're saying, oh, look, I popped over there for a quick visit. Yeah, well, we all know you can get there for a quick visit. It would have been nice if you laid down some infrastructure for everyone else to follow, because then we could really start attacking some challenging things. So, so I don't think the separation is clean. I tend to be viewed as a scientist in my current role just because of the longer-term destination of where we're going. Hmm. But, you know, I think it's um, it's a continuum. Yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe it's thinking about, is this a scientific task or is this an engineering task, right? What is the thing that I'm trying to accomplish at this moment? Precisely. It's much more characterized by that. And actually, it will iterate between two things, right? So, so all this stuff is fractal, this explore-execute challenge. When you're in the explore mode, the execute is more engineering like mm. and the science is often more explore like but having said that that's not a clean separation mm. if you're engineering you're often exploring what the best way to do something is but i think what you expect is perhaps the time frames of which you're targeting your goals in engineering are more rigid or shorter so there's less exploration before the execution but because of this is everything's fractal right in that sense that you have this long big term goal you're going to everest but today you're going to have breakfast right? And, right and actually you're executing that task you don't do that much exploring you know you go to the dried biscuits or whatever you've got you you heat some snow and you do it you don't like think oh maybe today i'll try eating stones to see what happens you know <laughs> Yeah, right. And, and that's what our lives are like when we're addressing these larger challenges. We wake up one morning, we may have this longer destination in mind, but we might just be doing a little bit of engineering um, to get us there. I mean, and then I think when you're doing a very complex infrastructural project, something like one of these very large neural network frameworks, you know, there is that exploration in there as well. People think, oh, let's try this. Something will try this architecture. You go down that way and you pull back. So the, the separation isn't clean, but I really like the, the analogy I use about the, the different ways of exploring the landscape because the other thing is when people come to manage you in these processes, mm. the management of these processes is so confused because 
people are looking what people are doing in the day to day and they think it's the same. Mm. If you don't look at the wider context, if, if you've managed, say, engineers for like 10 years of your career and then you come across a group of scientists, you know, fundamentally, the expedition looks the same. Yeah, right, yeah. you know, like like in terms of the kit they're carrying and the sort of stuff they're doing at any given moment, it looks the same. But the nature of the management is different because because like it, they're going up an alley blind. They, it may be an exploration track, whereas the engineers will typically know that that's the right way and will lay down more software. Now, that's then all sorts of things about like how much effort to put in structuring your software, you know, the the sort of code review and all these sort of things. All those things are, are useful in both, but the extent and the emphasis is placed on those things, I think, is uh, it varies. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges we face when these things are being done for a direction is understanding the transition about when a team is exploring, when they're executing, when the transition between those things are, and, and how it's also happening at this sort of more fractal thing, giving an individual the independence to do their own exploration execution. I find it fascinating. And, and that's kind of why I think one of the, the answers to the why I think I don't have such a dark view of the future. Well, it's not a particularly dark view of the future. I'm less concerned about the trends in machine learning scholarship that Zach and Jacob outlined, because at the end of the day, unless this stuff does something, no one will care. And people will come to realize that. Now, maybe it will mess up the field of academia and make it harder and harder for people to get published and doing stuff because it would be difficult to tell the wheat from the chaff. But one way of telling the wheat from the chaff is in deployment and in execution. And it gets round, right? When something's useful and it works, people find out about it. You know, so in the end, in the end, the, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. So if you've got a question for Talking Machines, you can email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at TLKNGMCHNS. And we'll have a link to the book that Neil talked about, Into the Silence, The Great War, Mallory, and the Conquest of Everest, on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's guest on Talking Machines is David Duvenot and he's a professor at the University of Toronto in computer science and statistics. And when we got a chance to sit down with him at the Deep Learning Summer School, uh, we asked him the first question we ask all of our guests. How did you get where you are? Sure. So it all started on LiveJournal. Oh, LiveJournal. Yeah. Which is sort of like two or three generations of social media ago, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, Pre-Friendster, post-MySpace. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, contemporaneous with like Orkut. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, and I remember typing in artificial intelligence into the search to see who was talking about this. And actually, Ooh, Shane cool. Legg, uh, the now co founder of DeepMind, was one of the people yeah. that I used to talk to. And he was. Reading Go Live Journal. Yeah. And I started reading his uh, journal, and he was talking about doing a PhD with Marcus Huter at IDSIA, where Jurgen Schmiduber is. Mm -hmm. And then I found Jurgen Schmiduber's webpage, which, uh, if you've never gone to it, it's it's a. It's a pretty impressive web page. I mean, it's got a very 90s feel in that it's all <laughs> boxes and sort of um, no white space at all. I mean, any self-respecting academic web page is sort of like, it's 1992 still. Yeah, exactly. And like weird colored backgrounds and weird fonts. Um, but the main thing is that he was, I had taken a little bit of, you know, artificial intelligence courses in undergrad, but it was sort of, you know, here's a few algorithms that you can do to get a machine to make predictions from data, which is a bit of a snooze fest. Um, if you don't have someone to help you connect it to these larger themes of like imagination and uh, just concept formation, cognitive science, you know, uh, humor, beauty, art, which yeah. you're going to be doing really did do. And, uh, you know, in my 
uninformed um, sort of, I sort of ended up hyping myself up to the point where I was like, oh my God, I gotta go to grad school and figure this stuff out or so I can make a contribution before this guy solves it in two years. <laughs> before you know. your contributor solves it all. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and then, um, but actually, all my friends went to grad school right away and I mm. got rejected from NSERC the first time I applied. Oh, and so no. then I was kind of like, oh, grad school's for jerks. I hate <laughs> it, um, I'll just stay around. And I was actually in the army at the time and wow. I was like, I'll go to Afghanistan. But then while wait, I was- <laughs> Wait, don't breeze past Afghanistan. How long was your service? What did you well, do? So I was just in the Canadian Army Reserves in armored reconnaissance. I was a trooper, which is equivalent to private. It's like the lowest rank. Um, it was really a nice change of pace from like, normal computer science-y sort of stuff. And while I was in training in Alberta, as the, the idea is that you say, they say, okay, if you think you want to go, mm -hmm. then you have to do like a few extra, like a year of training sort of thing. And yeah, while yeah. I was doing that, then my friends contacted me and said, hey, we're doing a startup. Do you want to be involved? And I started talking to them and then eventually decided that that was a more exciting direction. This uh, was the energy systems prediction stuff, right? Yeah, it was, we, yeah. it was in Venia, technical computing. Yeah, and it was started off, I think we were going to, yeah, we were going to commercialize a genetic algorithm package that this physicist at the U of Manitoba had developed. And then we pivoted and pivoted and pivoted again. Of course, that was before <laughs> people had this word. And so it was just, you know, I was failing and trying different ideas. And eventually we were trying to make a demo for a call center to predict call center volume. So we Ooh. wanted to use electric power demand because it's sort of analogous that it has these daily cycles and weekly cycles. Yeah. And we went to Manitoba Hydro to ask them, oh, can we have your data for Manitoba electricity demand? And for so we can make a demo. And they said, well, we can't just give our data to third parties. But right. if we uh, gave you money and called it a research contract, then we could give you the data. Whoa. So they gave us $10,000 and access <laughs> to this data set, which seemed like a huge amount of money to us. And um, we ended up making a demo for them instead, which nice. then pivoted into a larger, a $50,000 uh, contract Even more money. Yeah, to predict wind uh, generation. And the hilarious part was that um, I ended up being the tech lead at this startup. Um, and I didn't know what I was doing at all. And I remember like literally Googling, what is the best regression algorithm? <laughs> no. Plus you had just dropped out of the army. Yeah. Right, exactly. It was a tumultuous time. And then I found it, um, that David Mackay had won a contest for predicting energy demand using Gaussian processes. So I remember Googling that and actually finding some of Carl Rasmussen's papers and trying to read them and not really understanding them, downloading his MATLAB code. It has an error. It's like matrix must be positive semi-definite. It's like, why is that happening? What does that mean? Oh, God. And, yeah, and so it was the sort of standard like, no, we're, you know, we're data scientists, but it was sort of before Coursera, so that I, yeah, I couldn't yeah. even say that I had taken an online course. It was just me Googling things and, like, running my lab code. Uh, but it was okay, because, awesome. because, like, no one was doing this at the time. No, so it was yeah. sort of, like, yeah. Forerunner. Strong Google skills. <laughs> exactly. Strong Google skills leading you to basically everybody who's cool. David Mackay, I mean, that's a strong find. Yeah, exactly. And, and Carlos Meeson ended up being my advisor at Cambridge, like, you know, three or four years later. And so that was cool. Amazing. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. So 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 you've pivoted for the 18th millionth time. Yeah. You have $50,000. You're still at the startup. Tell me, so eventually you go to graduate school. Uh, yeah, exactly. So eventually I do sort of a... You know, Winnipeg is a nice place to grow up, and I liked it a lot, mm. but then all my f close friends had moved away to go to grad mm. school, and they were having a great time and clearly meeting amazing people and no having a lot of fun. No longer looks like it's for jerks. Uh, yeah, exactly. And so I thought, okay, well, since I can, everything we did, we said we were doing research, and so I said, oh, maybe I can try for NSERC again, and I did apply again and got it, and then I uh, went to UBC where Kevin Murphy, I had also read um, 
E.T. James's the logic or probability theory, the logic mm. of science, which is sort of like the Atlas shrugged of Bayesianism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like you read it and then you're like, oh my god, so many is... foundational ideas. And, my mind is blown. Well, and also he has this real um, sort of truculent. Uh, attitude, which is like, everyone is so blind, right. you know, these frequentists have somewhat taken over, even though they're clearly wrong about everything all the time. <laughs> and it's so simple that, that, you know, if only we would all follow these very simple laws yeah, that exactly. I have laid out here. Yeah, exactly. So of the schools that I got into, Kevin Murphy was the only person who was sort of talking about Bayesian statistics and machine learning and things like that at the time. Mm -hmm. So I was like, mm -hmm. okay, that's where I'm going to go. You got your Ayn Rand on with Kevin Murphy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Awesome. And then you were, um, then you, I believe you did a postdoc with Ryan Adams in the HIPS lab? Well, that, so the, Kevin Murphy was my master's. Oh, and okay, then okay. actually I went to a summer school, a machine learning summer school. It was, one, it was a really great one uh, in Cambridge in 2009. Hmm. And then I met Carol and Zubin, and I think I said some clever stuff. And so I ended up going there for my PhD, which was uh, wonderful. Um, yeah, and then I did a postdoc with Ryan Adams from 2006. 14 to 2016. Nice. Yeah. And now you're at the University of Toronto, newly uh, an assistant professor, yeah. and and also one of the founding members of Vector. Tell me more about that. Oh, so I have to say that that was, I mean, it, I feel a little bit weird saying that because I was sort of along for the ride. It was really, so Rich Zemmel was really the one who started sending out emails saying, hey guys, I think it's the right time uh, to found an institute and actually have a machine learning focused place yeah. around here. And I think he, I actually, I'm starting to realize that I'm kind of a pessimistic guy. And I was like, sure, we can just ask everyone for, you know, tens to hundreds of millions of dollars to do the research that we wanted to do in the first place for the most part. And it's all just going to somehow work and we'll be able to also find space and people to run it and everything. And it did work and I was really astounded. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. Nice. And so there was also a lot of fundraising work that went into to Vector during the initial organization stages. Yeah, and so the initial, the people who really went around raising money initially before it was really a thing was uh, Ed Clark, mm -hmm. really lent the whole enterprise a lot of credibility, um, Tommy Putinin, Jordan Jacobs, and of course, uh, Rich Zemmel, and this guy, uh, Alan Bierman from the province, who also did a lot of this. Jeff Hinton was there to sort of tell us what not to do, because he had actually founded the Gatsby Institute in the exact same yeah. room where we had all the meetings for the Vector Institute. Whoa. Yeah. What room is that room? Uh, so Pratt 290C. Nice. Yeah. Auspicious room. Auspicious room, yeah, exactly. Nice. But, yeah. So tell me more about what your group is doing at um, the University of Toronto. You have, a, you have a lab full of students. Yeah, so I mean, the first thing I'll say is that there's never been a better time to be recruiting grad students in machine learning. Oh, and, I'm sure. Um, you know, I just am totally blown away by the students I have now, and the bar is much higher than I, it, it would have uh, had to been for me to get You wouldn't let people in from, from yeah. like doing super great Googling? <laughs> exactly. I wouldn't, have admit, I wouldn't admit myself today. And it does actually, <laughs> to the point where it feels really unfair and unjust to say to students who maybe already have even a few papers and saying, yeah, you clearly have the skills and you're going to get a lot of fun and easy to work with and we're just full and this yeah, is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. And the bar actually to get in this year to the group was something like you need to basically already have something like a NIPS paper published already, oh. which is ridiculous because that's the whole point of grad school is to teach is you to how to do that. get that NIPS paper. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it makes my job. difficult. It makes my job, well, for the students, and it makes my job really easy. Oh, yeah. It's no, like, oh, sure. you, yeah. okay, you've already learned most of what I was supposed to teach you. Um, so, yeah, so the first thing you have to understand is that um, right now th things are a little bit um, on easy mode because the students are so astounding. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then the other thing that makes things nice here is the other faculty. And, you know, also when we showed up, uh, Rich Zemmel and Raquel Ertesen really we're sort of trying to make sure everything is like run as a group and mm. we all shared resources and things like that and that ended recruiting pool and that was wonderful and me and Roger Gross now are kind of like a, a pair that share most of our students. That's awesome. Yeah. 
So, so tell me about what is the sort of like next step of things you can accomplish when you have like students who already have their basic ninja training, right? Can you yeah. like do SEAL Team 6 stuff instead of just doing <laughs> like basic training stuff? I would say so. I would say that, you know, the idea is that we can um, have an idea about something that like a technical contribution and then there's always a whole bunch of little tricks that need to be worked out for it to actually be a viable idea and mm -hmm. a bunch of experiments that need to be run in a sort of thoughtful way and for, in order for us to make progress. And it's the sort of thing that that's the hard part to teach. Mm -hmm. And that's the part where Intuition. often, oh, you know, yeah, we'll talk to a student and then I'll come back to them the next week and they'll say, oh, the thing that we actually talked about didn't actually quite make sense. So I figured out the way that would make sense and I did that instead. And it's like, oh my God, this is amazing. Nice. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. To have to have a group of, you know, basically you're teaching them how to think, right? How to think, how to think through these problems. Yeah, exactly. And the temptation right now, because you know, deep learning is sort of powerful and not very well understood, is to do things in a sort of engineering trial and error way, mm. which there's certainly some merit to, but it's so easy to. So, what I always say is the worst thing you can do is to tweak your algorithm, run the whole thing at the end, and then watch your final number go up a little bit or down a little bit, yeah, and then make up a story for why. Um, why that happened, and then tweak your thing a little bit more. Yeah. Like the real, uh, the hard part to do is to decide, decide what questions to ask and sort of what windows onto what's happening you need to sort of code up and, and watch. Yeah. Instead of like trying to reverse engineer your narrative, given whatever result you have, like think fundamentally about the, what the question is. Yeah, exactly. It's too easy to fool yourself and to sort of um, let, let a coincidence lead you down a wrong path unless you're actually sort of eyes wide open looking at all aspects of what's happening. Nice. Um, yeah, and, and the funny thing is that that's sort of way, way, way easier to do in computer science than almost any natural science. Mm. So for instance, if you were to talk to a neuroscientist and say, oh, hey, we just invented this amazing microscope that lets you, you know, freeze someone's brain, look at every atom or every synapse or whatever level of detail you want um, at any time scale, and then also, you know, freeze things, make copies of someone's brain, run them with different conditions, you know, randomized controlled trials on a single person, they would say, oh my god, you know, neuroscience just got a million times easier. Right, yeah. Um, and that is the situation that we're in, in machine learning, where we have access to every bit of every computation that happens on our computers. There's no need for us to ever speculate, but it's still really hard to figure out what questions to ask about this computation. Right, right. What's going to be fruitful and what's going to take you down an interesting path. Yeah. So tell me more about the questions that you're really excited about sure. asking right now. Sure. So the overall goal, I think, of a lot of groups right now is to do some sort of model-based planning and control, and or, or you could call it model-based reinforcement learning. But the problem is that I think the pieces, the technical pieces aren't yet there. Uh, they aren't in place, they aren't developed, uh, they aren't mature enough. So what you'll see coming out a, a lot is there's been a huge amount of progress in model-free reinforcement learning, mm -hmm. which is sort of like, you know, do what feels good. <laughs> and, it, you know, it's about avoiding trying to model the whole world and right. just figure out, you know, what's a good policy. What's the slice that I can tackle? Yeah, or it's like, um, you know, you can come up with a good recipe for cookies without understanding all of human physiology and gastronomy and things like that just by trial and error. And then there's, you know, and it's clear that humans do rely on this strategy in our lives, you know, to some extent. Um, but it's also clear that for really sort of powerful inferences and general thinking where you make sort of like leaps uh, beyond what you were, what you've seen before, you do need to do some sort of model-based reasoning. Mm. So the idea is now you say that, okay, there is some true hidden state of the world. I don't know what it is. I only get to see noisy observations and you know partial information. Um, and 
there's also some dynamics of how the world actually works. Like you could say it's physics or maybe on higher level, like you know, physiology or economics or whatever, um, that we can also learn, but it's hard because we only ever get to indirectly see what's happening. Mm -hmm. And then I can, if I have a good model, then I don't have to do, use trial and error. Um, in the real world, I can do trial and error in my head and say, oh, what if I did you know, try this cookie recipe? What do I think is going to happen with the um, you know, moisture content inside of the cake or whatever? Yeah. So this is kind of like the idea of you know, moving our engineering discipline to something that looks more like physics. Mm -hmm. right? And so I think in principle, all the pieces about you know, uh, using Bayesian reasoning to combine evidence and decision theory to choose the best action and um, active learning to try to ask what questions would be most informative has all been worked out in sort of like the optimal infinite computation limit in like the 40s, pretty mm -hmm. much. Like most of that stuff was already done. And the hard part now is trying to figure out how to build tractable approximations to this sort of learning and decision process that can actually be deployed on something like a quadcopter or like an assembly line or something like that. Right, 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 right. These direct applications. Yeah. Nice. That so, sounds amazing. Yeah. And so the, the, to be specific, I think the parts that are sort of missing are one, just building good generative models. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's been a huge amount of work on this. And I don't, I'm not trying to claim that I'm like this maverick who's the only one who thinks this is the way forward. But, you know, a lot of work recently has been saying, oh, let's try to predict action conditional video frames. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that I'm watching some scene and I want to ask what happens if the robot moves its arm here. Right. You know, is the blocks, are the blocks going to fall over? Things like this. And so you can all, you can cast all of this as saying, what do I expect to see condition on what I do today? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's sort of a big part of the hype or the reason for the hype around generative models right now. So Nice. And the other, I'd say, one of the other big missing pieces is keeping track of uncertainty. Mm. So the idea being that there's too much detail in the world for us to actually learn all of it before we make a decision. And so we need to keep track of what parts of the world we understand and which ones we don't. Right. So for instance, if I'm learning to fly a quadcopter, I might know that you know when the quadcopter is roughly level and moving around slowly, I, I have a good idea of how it's going to move given different inputs. But maybe I've never flown it upside down. Right. And I don't know how, and I, and I know that I don't, don't know how, but that's okay because I can do most of the things I need to do with the quadcopter without flying it upside down. Yeah. And the only problem comes in if I don't keep track of that uncertainty, and then I try to make a plan that involves me flying upside flying down, upside down. Yeah. and then I don't consider the fact that my best you guess for what's going to happen right. is actually probably wrong. Yeah, so. right, right, right. That sounds fascinating. And you're, you're here at the summer school, the CIFAR summer school, mm -hmm. teaching a course on generative models. Yeah. So tell me about um, how is it different from your experience as a student? Um, I guess that's the thing is it's pretty hard for me to guess. I would say that probably the level is higher mm. in general. And uh, so Roger was on the recruitment committee and he was saying that some of these students who are sort of getting into the field already have maybe like four or five publications in the area. Yeah. So, and of course, and then some people are just coming from related areas or they actually are new. So, you know, in the old summer schools, I don't think there was really anyone who already had the sort of <laughs> level of a PhD in the field. And I guess the other thing is that there's just a lot more content out there about this stuff than when I was doing this. So uh, the, when I started, there was, you know, Bishop's book, Pattern Recognition, there was David right. McKay's book, and that was sort of it. And now I sort of, I think, have a harder time guessing what sorts of background people are coming to things mm, with mm -hmm. and some things I think they're really hyped about and some things they just don't know about at all and it's hard to guess which things I really need to sort of hammer home Their and which model, things are your model of uncertainty of your of <laughs> the group of students that you've yeah. got yeah, yeah yeah cool well tell me about how you've seen this this summer school unfold um in this iteration what do you what do you is there anything really exciting coming out of it or any like really cool interactions or something that you learned 
Uh, one thing that was cool is in my talk on generative models, I talked about this uh, paper I did with Matt Johnson and Alex Wojcicko on automatically coding and categorizing mouse behavior from video. You know, it was sort of a proof of concept. We really had to just look at one mouse that was sort of isolated into one pose. It was sort of baby steps. And uh, someone came up to me and said that they were actually trying to do the same thing for octopus behavior. <laughs> and so I kind of said, well, the octopuses have a lot going on. You know, I, I'm not sure we're there yet. I would love to work on that problem, though. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. And, you know, I, octopuses might have more interesting reactions if you were using them as drug models. So oh, yeah. <laughs> you get a wider variety of reactions from octopuses. Exactly, and they might try to communicate with us or something. Who right, knows? Yeah, yeah, totally. They become super intelligent and start communicating predictions about soccer games in yeah. the, into the future. Yeah. Well, one thing I would say that's different is that these methods are so much more practical. You know, the, the demos that people can show are not just toy problems, but mm. rather like all the great stuff you can do with GANs and things like that. So yeah. I think it's raised the bar a little bit. And it's been nice because now I think there has been a little bit of a necessary culling of research directions that maybe we're never going to go anywhere. Oh. But that being said, you know, you never want to count something out right. and say, well, this is uninteresting just because today I can't use it to make amazing like face models or something like that. Um, so you really, I mean, I, but I think overall it's been positive in that different research directions are a little bit more forced to justify themselves than they were in the past. Mm -hmm. This mm -hmm. can definitely go too far. But I think it was a step in the right direction a little bit. Nice. The barrier to entry on sort of all levels is a little bit higher these days. Yeah, definitely. You know, as we were saying, the level of professionalism in publicizing research mm. is also much higher. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of, it's kind of like gentrification, right? Like it, it, overall, it makes things nicer and easier for people outside the field to come in and get a taste of what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, but it also means that you have to have more resources to really play, you know, Play with the big dogs. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. To, to reach a level of where your ideas are taken seriously and are broadcast and you have access to other people, like that takes more resources and more input, right? You got to pick from a pool of grad students who already all had NIPs or ICML papers, right? Yeah. Which is not something that we had to do previously. Yeah, exactly. So, so what do you suggest to the undergraduate who's like interested but doesn't have a NIFS paper under their belt or has no idea or even just like has no idea oh. because that seems like a skill that's usually taught to you in graduate school, right? Like how does one get in? Yeah, so I get this question all the time from these tragic students who are clearly very motivated, very skilled. It sort of like could have been a more together version of me, you know, 10 years ago. <laughs> and my main uh, response is basically, you know, get a GitHub profile download some code, start coding things up yourself, mm. and show that you basically, A, know the tools and have the wherewithal to execute a project from beginning to having a sort of demo that you can show off. Yeah. So that really, it's kind of funny because even though I'm talking about how high the bar is, mm. just showing that you can tick those boxes of doing things on your own and finishing a project is sort of already puts you in the 90th percentile of applicants. Yeah. So. Show that you can do it. Work for free until someone will pay you. Yeah, and that's <laughs> kind of unfortunate <laughs> because not everyone has the time or money to work for right, free. Right, the right? resources to do yeah. that. Yeah. David Duveno from the University of Toronto. Really great to be able to hear him talk about the questions he's interested in and also how he's seen the, the field really evolve and where he thinks things are headed. Well, that's it for us this week. I am Catherine Gorman. Tune in next episode.